Well, I think that the platforms are probably one of the least important kabuki theater things we do in politics. Um, <laughs> you know, voters have no idea what's in them. Uh, it's a lot like student council elections. Everybody screams and yells about what the student councils, the new regime will do when they get in office. And then, of course, they don't, there's never any difference year over year over year. The students have kind of limited capacity to actually accomplish much, and so they do what they do. But the, the platforms are almost too much inside baseball for it to ever affect the voters. The voters don't really care. They don't know what's in them. It's sort of a fun activity for the delegates to do. But then the other thing is, the minute you lose the election, your ability to influence things, the minute you're not going to be the nominee. You jump ability, on that drafting session? Yeah. Um, well, you can get in the drafting session. You can bang your head on the table all you want. But ultimately, it's up to the nominee. It's, it becomes their party. And, oh, I see. Okay, yeah. you know, they don't care what you think. So what is Bernie Sanders going to demand? The answer is nothing because he, he's owed nothing. What he will get if he behaves is being treated with dignity and respect, and he will get a seat at the table to vet his ideas. But if he throws a fit like he did after Clinton, um, then he'll just be frozen out. And then if they win enough seats that he doesn't matter in the Senate, he'll be really frozen out. Well, Tony, so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there. Sure. I'm going to take complete exception to that. Sure. The pandemic unfolding an unprecedented public health catastrophe. And I think it vindicates, well, I'm, I'm not a Bernie bro. My listeners know I'm not a Bernie broette. And, <laughs> but I think that the pandemic, the outcomes now, are vindicating everything he said about healthcare in America and the, the kind of program he had envisioned. And I think he, having that position staked out for many, many years, I think there will be a tension if people are intellectually honest about the complexities of policy on the individual. Well, I think that Elizabeth Warren probably had a more comprehensive healthcare plan from my view, Bernie's was mostly sloganeering. There really wasn't. Right, I that, that I understand, but the slogan right. was so, aiming but, for that prize. But, but I think you're exactly right that the pandemic is what changes the conversation, not yep. Bernie. It's not Bernie driving the conversation, it's the okay. pandemic. Okay. And they're going to have to do something. I mean, something like 40 million people, maybe 50 million, have lost their insurance so far. And uh, it's, it's going to be a lot different world. But I think that what you're going to see is a coalition of the Democratic branches and even the progressive branch aligning with, we, we've got to fix the country. I mean, this is the, whatever differences there might be among, if you lined up all the Democratic senators, they don't agree 100% about anything. You, you would get, each of them would feel a little differently about many, many things. Same thing in the House of Representatives, same things with the governors. But if you line up all of the Democrats, and I would say something like half of the senators, Republican senators right now, you would have people very, very concerned about the pandemic, very concerned about our faltering place in the world order, very concerned about our economy. We have crumbled and we have no response to it. So I think what you're gonna see is a rapid, quick coming together across the political spectrum to try to solve some of these enormous problems we face. 
And the question is going to be, what happens to Trump when he loses? Is he going to start a radio broadcast network like he's kind of hinting at and compete with Fox News and then run again in four years? Is he going to go away silently? Is he going to be blowing up Twitter every five minutes? I don't know. But also what happens to the Republican Party once it's not the Trump Party? My prediction is the day after the election, you will suddenly hear Mitch McConnell fretting endlessly about the debt, even though he hasn't mentioned it in four years now. You're going to see a lot of concern about our place in the world. You will see an undoing of this decision to remove troops from Germany, and that's going to be bipartisan. So the solutions we see, even though we're in a very partisan world, I believe are going to be bipartisan because I think they have to be. The problems are too large for um, unilateral solution, uh, which is another reason that I think Biden will pick somebody like Kamala Harris, who at least can talk and stand toe-to-toe with Republicans on a variety of issues, having been uh, state attorney general. And I want to go to, it's a thing for me, and I don't know, Tony, if you remember, and, and it's, it's going to tie in here, I promise, with the sure. vice presidential selection, is that leading up to, I think it was a midterm election, I think that's when Coretta Scott King died and she had quite an intentional elaborate funeral deservedly and then Muhammad Ali had a funeral in the summer of 2016 and now we have congressman John Lewis's funeral that also was very intentional many messages wrapped into eulogizing him And when I look at, there's a pattern here, they're too early, those funerals, for really like launching the last sort of engage the voter kind of campaign. I'm not kidding. Right. Um, So I guess it was an inconvenient time to pass away from the election standpoint. But in in all seriousness, John Lewis's uh, editorial to be published on the day he was buried is a staggeringly impressive piece of voter motivation. So while the event itself happened then, that message will be handed out in flyers to get people to go vote. And, you know, every year we lose more of the sort of first generation civil rights icons. And that's not going to let up. It's like our World War II vets. We're not that far away from them not being here anymore. Right, that's true. Um, So we will always have new leaders and we can always remember our former leaders. So I think that the vice presidential search is a little bit disconnected from that sort of march of time that happens with your moral and political leaders. But you know, hmm. I, I, I will be honest with you. I think Biden decided probably 90 days ago. To right. Pick- we didn't get to that earlier. Yeah. The, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that was going to be a question. This, in this is a drama drag out. I think it's yeah. to make, to, to kind of maximize the attention of it. And like you wouldn't have wanted to announce it the week that John Lewis was being buried. You know, you wouldn't want to you know, kind of step on honoring him while that's with, a big speech, right? So it's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever had a friend that goes to a wedding, somebody else's wedding, and then they ask somebody to marry them on the dance floor and a big, with a microphone. It's so rude. You know, <laughs> you away. 
<laughs> you're taking away from the oh, bride and groom that day's uh, thing, or like your baby shower, you announce you're pregnant. There's a timing that has to happen to be respectful of the other activities that are going on. Well, it's also opportunity. Let that yeah. engaged mess, voter engagement message sink through. And, but I want to, because we're talking about white males living in the present, living in the past, and figuring into being figureheads for uh, political uh, engagement and all that. So I, I imagine you saw Bill Clinton's delivery at the funeral for John yeah, Lewis. Yeah, sure did. And so I, when I saw that, I, you know, it did make white dudes have a lot to clean up after that. I don't know whose audience Clinton was speaking to, but I thought it was really way off. It was not in these times. Did you have a reaction to that? And, and I, it made me wonder, we've got to make sure white males have figured out where the body politic is and moves to. You know, I think, uh, I think the African-American community has a very special relationship with Bill Clinton. And uh, I don't think, so I think for, for, cat, for folks watching it, it may have seemed a little um, off tune, but for the African-American audience that he was speaking to, uh, I think it was fine. I think it was, you know, terrific. And it speaks to John Lewis's impact that three presidents, all the living ex-presidents showed up to pay their respects. And I think that's the bigger lesson. Republicans and Democrats standing at the front of, of a church um, honoring somebody who spent his life trying to make it better for other, other folks. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's the larger takeaway rather than any, you know, nitpicking about any particular uh, turn of phrase or statement. I think, you know, Clinton is an elder statesman now for the party and uh, people sure remember his time in office fondly by and large, balance of budget, um, highest African-American home ownership in the history of the country, um, all kinds of great things. Um, and, uh, you know, Bush and Clinton were warm-ups to Obama. So, I, you know, he, he, Clinton couldn't get up there and steal Obama's thunder. Right? Well, so, so to your, yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Well, so they just had to be, it, it would be a very different speech if there were just one former president. Each one of them would have given what Obama gave. <laughs> uh, that's think. a fair point. So, so I, to your analogy about stepping on toes, though, it's sort of a lesser extent. I think uh, it certainly, it was for George Bush, it was a, an, a, one of the few opportunities he's going to have the remainder of his life to recalibrate a public relations problem on his hands from the messes he left behind after his presidency. You, you know, I think that's true, but I sort of think that, that George W. Bush and Jimmy Carter both owe Donald Trump a debt of gratitude. Oh, I don't want to go there. They will <laughs> never be thought of as the worst president again. Oh. <laughs> so I, I don't know how many Democrats would be happy to trade Bush for Trump today. <laughs> I, bet, I bet all of them. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> too soon. Too soon, Tony. Too soon. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> I guess we've gone over all of the check. Oh, the one last detail about the checklist and the timing of announcing Joe Biden's sure. vice presidential running mate is, the longer this runs, the more opposition research money that the opposition party has to spend. 
Well, that that's possible, but you have to you have to put this in the larger scheme of the size of the budget of the modern campaign. Um, if they spend a million bucks on each one of the possible people, that's still a drop in the bucket compared to what they are spending. I mean, you know, it's so it, more time, time rather than money is probably okay. The issue. That's um, excellent. Yeah, but good point. Probably everybody in that short list, they've already they've already got all the oppo research they need. And really, if there was any oppo research about Harris that was going to be devastating, I can assure you, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, and maybe a few others of them who had Pete, pretty big would operations would have brought it out in the primaries like they did for other other okay. candidates as well. So I'm not I'm not too worried about that. Um, I, I think the big issue is making sure you don't step on other things that the campaign is doing. So for instance, let's say you've got 10 major fundraising Zoom meetings going on. You don't want to um, have one an hour after you've done this announcement and have them say, how come we didn't know first? So there are lots of moving parts that are not on the front page of the news. Uh, what else is going on in the campaign? What else is going on with the individuals? Once somebody's picked, they also do a vetting on their families to make sure there's no secret heroin addict or something. Uh, or generally speaking, I'm not sure McCain's team did that as thoroughly with Palin. Um, I understand they were persistently shocked by the uh, ever giving gift of uh, Levi, the Sarah Palin's daughter's husband at one point. Oh, the husband then. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> right, you've forgotten him, right? I have thought, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, so I, so there's actually more more vetting. Once you pick the person, there's still about two or three months worth of vetting that has to happen. So most of what you're hearing right now is just noise. It's not real. Uh, there's not real indecision. I don't think at this point in Biden's team. So unrelated to the vice presidential selection, I'm glad you raised the point that the even if it looks like we're, that a lot of money is involved, the extent to which there is, there are billions of dollars available now. The yeah. pockets are extremely deep in underwriting these national and even some of the federal, like the congressional campaigns. But there's yeah. so much money in, involved now that um, I, I keep a jaundiced eye when I see candidates push out, you know, we've outraised my opponent. Well, they haven't even considered the dark money or the big press uh, the, uh, for, yeah. for cash at the end. So it's a good thing you've raised that issue so people can know that uh, and think critically about the claims Absolutely. that are made about the fundraising. It's, Absolutely. It's a, it's a gimmick, but we got to see through that gimmick because there's, there's so right. much money that we don't even see. And that's all the way down ticket up to the top for sure. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. I'll look forward to talking to you again. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.